Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're listening this Sunday morning. Well, it's going to be an incredible show today. I'm so glad that you're listening. We're going to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Craig Keener, who has written a wonderful book titled Miracles. Dr. Craig Keener, Ph.D. from Duke University, is a professor of the New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is especially known for his work as a New Testament scholar. His popular-level IVP Bible background commentary to the New Testament is available in a number of different languages and has sold over a half million copies. He's authored 17 books, four of which have won awards in Christianity Today. His recent books include Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. That's what we'll be discussing today. He's also recently written The Historical Jesus of the Gospels, The Gospel of Matthew, a socio-rhetorical commentary, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he, of course, didn't write the biblical Romans or First and Second Corinthians, but commentaries on those, and the Gospel of John, a commentary. He is at the forefront of Christian apologetics, defending the claims of the Bible and Christianity against attacks from people like Ehrman, who we've discussed the past four weeks, and I am so excited to have him on the show this morning. Find out more about Dr. Keener at craigkeener.com, and that's spelled C-R-A-I-G-K-E-E-N-E-R. Again, C-R-A-I-G-K-E-E-N-E-R.com. Again, today we're going to be focusing on his 1,200-page, two-volume masterpiece, Miracles. Welcome to the God Solution, Dr. Keener. It's great to be with you. So as we get started, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, and how you developed an interest in Christian apologetics. In a sense, those are related questions, but they're not quite the same. How I came to faith in Christ, I had been an atheist and was pretty convinced that you could explain everything naturalistically, purely naturalistically, and then I began to doubt, actually, when I was reading Plato, which is really you know, odd, but I was reading Plato and he was talking about the immortality of the soul and things like that, and I didn't think his arguments were very good, but his questions really were, and I realized that I couldn't even explain my own existence my own consciousness. I began to wonder if there was something beyond us that was more intelligent than us. I just began to say, God, if you're out there, please show me. As far as everybody knew, I was still an atheist. I guess I was really an agnostic at that point. And some people came to me on the street and shared Christ with me. I argued with them for 45 minutes and walked home so convicted by the Holy Spirit, although I didn't have that language back then, that I got to my home and was just overwhelmed by God's Spirit. And I said, God, I've been asking you for evidence, and I wasn't expecting this kind of evidence, but if you're saying that you're real and Jesus died and rose again so that I could be made right with you, I don't understand how that works. But God, if that's what you're saying, then I'll believe it. But Lord, I don't know how to be made right with you, so if you want to do it, you're going to have to do it yourself. And I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I jumped up scared out of my mind, (laughs) not sure exactly what had just happened to me, but that was the beginning of my Christian life. And I knew God was real, but I still had all my questions. I didn't know how to answer most of those questions. The existential ones were answered. I began to get a hold of some more books and things that really helped me at that point. But I didn't really consider myself a Christian apologist, even after I got my PhD and was doing scholarship. I just wanted to be an honest scholar. You know, an apologia is a defense. 
and scholars normally will stake out a position, they'll defend it because they think it's correct. Well, some of them defend it just because they want to get tenure, but I was defending what I thought was correct. And I found an interesting phenomenon, which was that when scholars are defending a thesis about the Gospels being incorrect or defending a thesis that's against something that Christians believe, they often will call it critical scholarship. But when someone defends a thesis that is in accordance with something that the Bible teaches, they call it apologetics. They're defending a thesis, I'm defending a thesis, but I'm defending a thesis because I really believe that these things are accurate. Well, I'm thankful for this book, Miracles, that you put together. I have mentioned it several times in different forms. It's been mentioned on the show here, and it's come up in many conversations with atheists. Talking to an atheist group recently, they were saying miracles just don't happen, and I love being able to encourage them. Why don't you buy Dr. Craig Keener's book, Miracles, and let's talk about that issue later. It's just wonderful that there's a resource out there like that, and I think it's kind of one of a kind. So that being stated... Tell me how the idea for this book came about and what led you to write this incredible masterpiece. I was working on a commentary on Acts, which is four volumes now. And while I was working on it, I was dealing with historical questions. And one of the objections that people often raise against the historical reliability of the Gospels and Acts is that people who are skeptical of miracles say, well, these report miracles, and therefore... We know that they can't be historically accurate, at least so far as this goes. That was actually one of the fundamental reasons for arguing initially that the Gospels contain legends and myths, because the skeptics said, well, miracles can't happen. So I was just going to deal with that very quickly. You know, I was just going to deal with it in a footnote, saying, well, it's quite obvious that this argument against the reliability of the Gospels doesn't work, because however you interpret these events or these experiences, there are lots and lots of accounts of them today. You can't say that eyewitnesses don't claim these things. You can't say that people don't experience these things, whether you explain them as a miracle or not. So I thought, you know, I'd just go find a book that listed a few hundred of these experiences, and initially I couldn't find any, and the footnotes kept growing longer and longer, and as I kept getting uh, more and more material, and after it was about 200 pages, obviously no longer a footnote, but kind of long for a chapter too, I proposed it as a, an independent book, and it came out to be about 1,200 pages. Well, I'm so thankful that you took the time to do it, and it's equipping people like myself, and I'm sure countless others, with great evidence for the miraculous, not just in ancient times, but even through the present day. So thank you so much. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with your book, what is the premise of your book? Well, the main premise is pretty much just what I said, because there are people who say, well, these reports couldn't be eyewitness reports. Most New Testament scholars today, I don't think, would say that people don't claim these kinds of experiences, but there's still plenty of people who do say things like that. And since that was one of the fundamental arguments against the reliability, the premise of the book is very basic. It seems to me a no-brainer that... Yeah, there are eyewitnesses who claim these things. And in fact, if you say that there aren't people who have these kinds of experiences, your head has to be in the sand. Maybe they don't talk about it in your particular discipline or your particular circle of friends, but surveys show that there are hundreds of millions of people who claim these kinds of experiences. 
So that was the major premise. There's also a secondary premise, which can be more controversial because it deals with the issue of people's assumptions, starting assumptions, presuppositions. And that is one of the main reasons that people argue that miracles don't happen goes back to a philosophic argument that says, well, if we don't have any credible eyewitness evidence for miracles happening, therefore we have no reason to believe that miracles have ever happened. And the massive amount of eyewitness evidence we do have should call that presupposition into question and say, okay, people have these kinds of experiences, now how do we explain them? Maybe some of them, maybe even many of them, are actually miracles. So why do many scholars today take for granted that miracles do not occur? I've previously discussed Hume's failed attempt at disproving miracles here on the show. And as you discuss this, why was Hume's argument so influential and what went wrong with it? Whoa, that's a lot of questions altogether. (laughs) (laughs) But if you can bear with me, I'll try to address each of those. If we assume that miracles can't happen, then even evidence that could be used to support miracles gets explained away as something else. I mean, you can say you're open-minded, but if you put the bar of evidence so high that you say, well, I won't accept anything except, you know, if God writes it in the sky, and then if you see something in the sky, you say, well, a plane must have done that. You know, (laughs) people can explain away anything. There was one person that I interviewed and got the medical documentation from where her sight was clearly healed during prayer. Before she had this condition and afterwards she didn't. And the particular doctor who was working with her had no explanation for it, admitted that she'd never seen anything like this before, but she refused to call it a miracle. Within her expertise of medical knowledge, she was able to verify that these things happened, but when it came down to her personal presuppositions, she wouldn't call it a miracle because she didn't believe miracles happened. Some people will only believe it if you see it in scientific journals, but normally those journals deal with what's replicable. And miracles, by definition, just like any event in history, just like the events that journalists have to deal with, are not replicable. The scientific method is right to deal with what's replicable. That's what science is supposed to do. But when you come to history or other things dealing with human events, human experiences, often you're dealing with unique events. Well, some people will say, well, miracles are a unique kind of event, and We don't have any other parallels for miracles, but that's, again, dismissing all the other evidence without looking at it. But this has to be dealt with more by case studies, because it's not something that happens all the time. If it did, we would probably say this is just the way nature works. Many people today simply assume that this is a settled issue without knowing where their assumption comes from historically. And even those who know where it comes from historically, usually depending on David Hume, don't realize how debated David Hume's essay has been throughout history. And today, there are major philosophic works published by Oxford, Cambridge, and other major university publishers that dispute Hume's thesis in this essay. And not all of them are from Christians. I mean, some of them are from people who just think it's a bad argument. You also asked me why his argument was so influential. In Hume's day, it wasn't as influential because Hume was just recycling and condensing some earlier arguments by deists, often without giving their full arguments. There was another essay in his day by Conyers Middleton, which was far more influential in his day. But because of Hume's prestige, eventually this essay became 
the definitive anti-miracles argument, and yet it has been debated ever since it was written, and as I said, it's widely debated today. There are really two parts to his essay. My focus is more on the second part, but I'll start with the first part, if you'll bear with me. He argues from uniform natural law, but it's kind of a circular argument because his view of what is uniform law is based on human experience. But in the second part of his essay, he excludes all testimony for miracles from that argument regarding experience. And also his argument from natural law is not something that would really work today because there are different approaches in philosophy of science today to natural law, but most of them treat natural law as merely descriptive. That's not the way Hume was using it. Hume was saying, well, if it doesn't fit the usual pattern, then we have no reason to believe that it happens at all. And so it gives him a, a grid through which he can explain away or dismiss evidence. Even though most English Enlightenment scientists of his day actually believed in miracles. That's true of, of course, Isaac Newton. It's true of Robert Boyle, who is often considered the father of chemistry, and so on. But the second part of his essay is the most problematic part, in my opinion. It's really circular reasoning. He says, we have uniform human experience, so we don't want to believe in miracles because they violate uniform human experience. But what happens when you have multiple independent witnesses, and you have lots of them? How can we speak of human experience as being uniform if you have witnesses about miracles? So he goes out of his way to explain why we can't trust such witnesses, even though even a lot of experiences in his own day didn't fit that grid. He dismisses ancient testimony. He dismisses testimony from other cultures. Basically, his uniform human experience comes down to his own immediate circle's experience. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Craig Keener, author of Miracles and numerous other books. He is an incredible historian, an incredible apologist, and he is somebody that I'm thrilled to have on the show today. Thanks for listening. So is there evidence that he was willing to follow that bias rather than looking at the evidence? You kind of touched on that a bit. Hume himself acknowledged that outside of his study, he couldn't follow his philosophy to its logical conclusions, but he wasn't even consistent with his own epistemological approach in his own work on miracles. One example that he gave and then dismissed was the example of the healing of Pascal's niece. Blaise Pascal, sometimes we call him the father of the modern computer, he was a brilliant mathematician. He had a, a wonderful experience with the Holy Spirit, and Pascal found very convincing what, what happened to his niece. His niece had a, an organic running eyesore. It smelled very bad. Everybody knew about it. It had been there for some time. And she was at a Jansenist monastery in France when she was instantly and publicly healed through faith in Christ. There were a lot of witnesses the Queen of France sent her own physician to examine what had happened and was convinced that a miracle had taken place. Hume says, well, we have more evidence for this, medical documentation and so forth. We have more evidence for this, public, widely known, than we do for any occurrence in the Bible. And yet, we don't believe in this, so why should we believe in the Bible? 
and then just dismisses it without argument, because in his day, a lot of people would just dismiss anything that came from the Jansenists, mainly because the Jansenists were too Catholic for the Protestants, and they were too Augustinian for the Jesuits, and so he just threw it out. <laughs> hmm. So you mentioned how he dismissed the views of other cultures. Could you name yes. any ways that he did that and how this affected his willingness to follow this evidence? Oh, my. Yes. He really was very ethnocentric. Now, this is not to say that everybody who doesn't believe in miracles is being ethnocentric necessarily, but Hume certainly was. Hume dismissed any evidence from other cultures by calling them ignorant and barbarous nations. Not in this essay, but in some other essays, he said, there's no civilization that's ever produced any great invention or work of literature or art except white civilizations. What about China? What about the civilizations of India? What about empires in Africa? I mean, he just doesn't seem aware of global history very well, even though he's supposedly an expert on it. Here actually is a quote from him, and I hope you will forgive me and remember that this is just a quote. My wife is African, so I just have a sensitivity to how this sounds. But anyway, Absolutely. Hume said, I am apt to suspect the Negroes, and in general, all of the other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white. He said that none of the slaves in the British Empire, despite generations of holding slaves, had ever achieved any great learning. Well, I wonder why they didn't have that opportunity. But anyway, he says, oh, yes, there's one Jamaican who is said to be able to recite poetry, but any parrot can repeat what it hears. Well, the Jamaican to whom he was referring was Francis Williams, who composed poetry in English and in Latin. Hume's arguments were still being used almost a century later. They made it much harder for abolitionists in his own generation and in the generations that followed. And the kinds of evidence that he was dismissing, we just have such abundant evidence from so many cultures today. Today, if somebody tried the argument that he used, they would immediately be dismissed as an ethnocentric bigot, which unfortunately Hume was. So Hume's arguments were circular and illogical. They were ethnocentric, and it seems that he was following a bias rather than the evidence where it would lead. So when it comes to the issue of miracles, are modern skeptics faring any better than Hume in either the area of their bias or that of coming up with convincing arguments against miracles? For the most part, most of the modern arguments just recycle Hume. You know, you can't really prove a negative, so it's kind of hard to argue that miracles don't happen without examining a lot of the evidence. But what people will sometimes do, they'll take one case, or they'll take two cases, and they'll try to poke holes in it and say, well, there's not enough evidence here, or this could have been faked, or you could be lying, or, or whatever. You can always come up with an alternative explanation of a given case, even if your explanation is just, well, 10,000 people were all lying. <laughs> it's not necessarily a good explanation, but sometimes people will say, well, even if I don't have a natural explanation, someday there'll be a natural explanation. Well, that's saying, well, I win the argument no matter what kind of evidence you propose. It's not really open-minded, and people actually have done that. Now, if I tried arguing that as a Christian and saying, well, I don't have a divine explanation for this, but someday I will, they would immediately jump on that, and yet they expect us to 
by it when they say, well, we don't have a natural explanation, but someday there will be one. I was recently discussing the moral argument for God's existence on the show with an agnostic slash atheist. And after the show, we were discussing it, and I said, I, it seems to me like you are basing your unbelief in very bad arguments. This person in particular claimed that objective moral values do exist, but they just don't need an explanation. And from there, we discussed the cosmological argument for God's existence. And he says, well, the universe just exists. It doesn't need an explanation. I said the same thing. What would you say if I told you I'm right and I don't need an explanation? And he said, I wouldn't let you get away with it. And I said, exactly. How does the atheist get away with such arguments? It sounds like kind of a similar issue. Well, let me ask you about a quote. It's on page 178 of Jesus Interrupted. We just spent the last four weeks discussing Ehrman's newest book. But in Jesus Interrupted, he writes, is my explanation of what they claimed, what they did, very probable? And he admits, no. But then he says, but it's not impossible. From a strictly historical point of view, it is more probable than an actual resurrection. Is this kind of an illustration of that type of bias that is making it so that these skeptics would take anything to explain away the evidence? Unfortunately, that's often the approach in academia, and that's the approach that actually many of us have been trained in. You try to find a naturalistic explanation, if possible, and make it work. I believe God often works through natural causes. Even the parting of the Red Sea, Exodus 14 says that God sent a strong east wind and blew the sea back, although I don't think that would happen on its own right at the time that the Israelites would get there. God works through natural things. There's no reason to say, well, we have to exclude natural causes. But when people a priori exclude the possibility of divine activity and divine explanations, it's one thing if somebody says, okay, well, within our discipline, the rules of the discipline, we're not allowed to talk about that, so we just bracket that from the discussion. I may not agree with that methodology, that's at least honest. We're agreeing on the ground rules, we're just not going to talk about this one way or the other. But when you say, okay, here are the ground rules, and therefore supernatural explanations can't be true, you're just assuming atheism and expecting everybody to go along with it. And that is a problem, to say the least. Well, you cite a lot of evidence for miracles in your book, Miracles, because you like to do careful research and document your books. How many sources do you actually cite? I often tell people the end notes in this book take up a few hundred pages. So how many sources do you actually cite? It doesn't seem as long to me now that I'm working on my Acts commentary. In my bibliography of secondary sources for Acts, I've got over 10,000 <laughs> secondary sources. And the primary sources have got tens of thousands of ancient references. But in the Miracles book, I would say, I think the bibliography includes about 4,000 entries of secondary sources, which actually for me was a stretch because a lot of it was not in my discipline. So I was having to work my way through a lot of other disciplines, some of which were very fun and some of which were challenging. I am so thankful for that basis for the rest of the book. So that being stated, would you share a few miracle stories from antiquity? I know you wanted to take us from the time of Christ in antiquity through the present day and show that miracles weren't fanciful then and they're not fanciful now. So before we get to current miracle stories or modern miracle stories, what about some of those stories from antiquity? Sure. There are actually quite a lot of church fathers who not only talk about miracles and talk about 
people being converted through miracles and sometimes naming the people who were converted through miracles, but sometimes give their own eyewitness testimony of miracles. And Ramsey McMullen, who's a Yale historian, documented that in the 3rd and 4th centuries, the leading cause of conversion to Christianity was people experiencing healing or deliverance from spirits. And I heard an interview that was done with Dr. McMullen. He didn't sound really happy about this, but that's the evidence he found. Augustine, who's very highly reputed today and was a very prolific author and orator in his day, Augustine had believed that miracles, for the most part, didn't occur in his own day. He allowed for exceptions, but he changed his mind later on. And, and you find a lot of this, especially in City of God 22.8, where there were so many miracles occurring that he was convinced. He had about 70 affidavits from his diocese collected in just about two years of time. And he noted that there were many others that people hadn't turned in their evidence yet. He was still prompting them, you know, come on, you should put this in writing. We should get the documentation for this. But in any case, Augustine had a friend who was healed. Augustine himself was healed. One of the reports he gives was of his friend, Innocent, who had an anal fistula, which would be very painful. And he had a number of them, and the surgeons had been able to remove most of them, but there was one still left. Keep in mind, in those days, people often bled to death during surgery, and they had no anesthesia. So this man really didn't want to get another surgery, and consequently, they got a second opinion, but the second opinion was the same. He needed to have this removed. So Augustine and some others were praying with Innocent the night before the operation, and the man was crying out to God so plaintively that Augustine said that he was distracted from his own prayers and could only say, God, if your heart can't be moved by such wailing as this, I don't know what would move you. Well, the next day, they went to the operation, and the fistula was gone. Eyewitness testimony from antiquity, if they were writing it at the time that it happened, that's also eyewitness testimony, just like any eyewitness testimony today. So Augustine being a witness, it's just like if we had somebody today writing down their experience. Absolutely. I am excited about the wealth of eyewitness testimony there is in history, even when we look at things like the resurrection. That's incredible, and it is neat to see it here as well. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Craig Keener this morning. Tune in again next week for the final part of our interview with Dr. Keener concerning his book, Miracles. Please visit craigkeener.com, spelled C-R-A-I-G-K-E-E-N-E-R.com. Go to Amazon.com and type in Craig Keener to find all of his books. I hope that you realized that the New Testament documents are reliable and that the miracle accounts in the New Testament are credible, not fanciful. And I hope that this leads you, like all of our other shows, to realize that faith in Jesus Christ is plausible and not just plausible, but like I say every week, I believe that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search will always lead you to Jesus. If you're at that point today, if you've never taken that step to put your faith and trust in him, the Bible says that you and I are sinful and separated from God eternally, and that we, because of our sin, could never be in relationship with him. He loves us, though, and because he loves us so much, he sent his son, Jesus, God in human flesh, to live a perfect life on this planet and to die for your sins and mine. 
The Bible says anyone who realizes what he's done for us and receives his gift of forgiveness and salvation will be adopted into his family. All this takes is to put your faith and trust in him, receiving what he's done for you as a gift. If you're at that point today, say, Jesus, I know you are who you say you are. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life. Forgive my sins. Please be my Savior and Lord. The Bible says that if you took that step this morning, you've been adopted into his family and that he will hold you throughout the rest of your life, guaranteeing you a life of meaning and purpose here on this planet, and he'll give you a life of eternity in heaven with him. I'm so excited that you took that step this morning. There is not going to be Connect this week for any of you that are wondering. It's summer break, so no Connect this summer, but you could join a local church this morning. Go to GodSolutionShow.com for a list of local churches and the times and the places that they meet. You'll also find at GodSolution.com an area where you could leave comments. I would love to hear what you think of the show, any questions you'd like me to address on the show, you name it. I'd love to hear it. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.